Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Ahead on the show, we'll see how lawmakers are looking at ways to generate more revenue, from new taxes to diversifying the economy. Imagining a future where we have a diverse economy, what would we want that tax structure to actually look like? We'll explore a possible alternative to the controversial land transfer bill that would empower locals to negotiate with the feds. I think this bill went a long ways to alleviate that local frustration that we're hearing. We'll explore what virtual education means for teaching in Wyoming. The kids don't need me. I actually am obsolete because they can Google everything they need to know. We'll also look at the lead contamination at Pinedale High School and an update on Liz Cheney's first weeks in Washington. Those stories and more are all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming. Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. In 2015, the town of Pinedale turned off its sodium silicate water treatment, a type of corrosion control that helps prevent lead contamination from old plumbing. The next year, dangerous levels of lead were found in one residence and at the town's high school. As Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports, the treatment has been turned back on, but residents want to know why it was shut off in the first place. It was a September day, not too long after the start of a new school year, when Sublette County Superintendent Jay Harnack got the news no school official wants to hear. It was the Environmental Protection Agency informing Harnack that the water students and staff had been drinking at Pinedale High School was contaminated with lead. When we found out we had potential issues with water quality, uh, specifically lead, we notified our parents the same day. Harnack says he understood the urgency of the issue. Lead exposure can cause serious health problems, and children are among the greatest at risk. Water use was immediately restricted in the building, and drinking it has remained off-limits. So students and staff depend on bottled water paid for by the school district. Harnack says the timing is poor. We are incurring additional costs uh, in a time when we are looking at reducing budgets. Harnack says in November, just the bottled water cost the school district $840. On top of that, the Sublette County School Board voted to hire an environmental consultant. Harnack says the consultant will be tasked with finding the cause of contamination and determining when or if the district can begin to provide water from the building again. We want to make sure we get this absolutely right. I mean, there are children involved in, in this issue and, and staff members as well. Harnack says they believe the lead contamination was a result of lead solder in the building's old pipes. Usually, that lead soldering isn't a problem because of the town's sodium silicate treatment that coats the piping and prevents lead from leaching out into the water. However, that treatment was turned off in April 2015. Pinedale Town Councilman Tyler Swafford says he wanted to know why the sodium silicate was shut off. I did want an investigation because I wanted um, the accountability and I guess the responsibility. I-, I wanted that to come out. At a recent town council meeting, Pinedale Mayor Bob Jones took responsibility for the decision. So now a third party investigation is unlikely. 
it basically became evident that spending $30,000 on an investigation to find out exactly what Bob just admitted to wasn't really going to do anything, if that makes sense. Like, there was, there was no repercussions to come from it. Mayor Jones wasn't always willing to take the blame. During multiple town council meetings, Jones said the decision to stop the sodium silicate was made collectively by he and other public works employees and was part of a larger plan to switch the town's water treatment exclusively to soda ash, a much cheaper option. When Jones took office in 2014, he appointed himself to the position of public works director, Councilman Swafford says that's not normal procedure. So he's the guy telling all the public works, you know, guys what to do. And myself, and there's probably a fairly large contingent um, in the town of Pinedale that don't feel that that's right. After becoming mayor, Jones also fired various Pinedale employees, including town engineer Eugene Ninney. They had gone through and essentially pushed everybody out the door. Uh, Their solution to solve problems was to fire everybody. And I was the last one in line. Pinedale has been working on overhaul of its water and sewer infrastructure for some time now. And part of that included the addition of a soda ash injection system. But Nini says he does not remember any plan to switch exclusively to soda ash. Nini also says because so many employees were fired, a lot of Pinedale's institutional knowledge was lost. So if you kick the key people out and they're no longer there... It's almost like book burning. (laughs) You know, if you burn books, you can rewrite history. But even if the plan was to switch exclusively to soda ash, shutting off the sodium silicate still violated the national primary drinking water regulations. Municipalities are required to notify the Environmental Protection Agency in writing of any upcoming changes in treatment, and those changes must be reviewed and approved before they are implemented. So, in October 2016, the EPA sent a violation notice to Pinedale demanding the town turn its sodium silicate back on immediately. And they did. Mayor Jones declined Wyoming Public Radio's request for an interview. Since the violation notice, many residents have asked Mayor Jones to resign, but Councilman Swafford doesn't see that happening. He'll have to be voted out at the next election is the only only chance for change there. If residents don't want to wait until May 2018 when the mayor's term ends, Swafford says the town council could adopt what he calls an accountability ordinance. It's like a recall ordinance and would need at least 25 percent of registered voters in Sublette County to sign a petition. Gives them more power to make a difference, make a change if needed. Like I said, if we're not doing our jobs, then why would we not have to be accountable for that? For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. In an upcoming episode of Open Spaces, we'll take a closer look at accountability ordinances and what options Wyoming citizens have when they're not satisfied with their elected officials. A bill drafted for the legislature proposed to revise Wyoming's constitution to allow the state to take over management of federal lands. The idea was intensely controversial and was killed on Friday. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports, a couple of weeks ago, some legislators sat down with the Wyoming Wildlife Federation to come up with an alternative to public land transfers that led to the bill's demise. In early January, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation wrote a letter to the Select Committee on Federal Natural Resources asking them not to introduce a constitutional amendment that they felt had appeared out of nowhere. Shane Cross is the group's board chair. They said they wanted to bolster that management scheme to protect public access. And from our organization's perspective, that was putting the cart in front of the horse. Cross says they didn't see why the state should go rewriting the Constitution to protect access to public lands before the federal government even agreed to give away its public lands. 
In the letter, the group suggested legislators consider alternatives. Cross says that's when Senator Larry Hicks replied, OK, I challenge you to come up with some ideas. So they got to work. One thing that, that the National Wildlife Federation found was a bill in Colorado that was passed in 2015 to create resource management plans to local governments and strengthen their participation in the federal agency decision-making process. The Wildlife Federation invited Colorado Senator Carrie Donovan to present her state's public land transfer alternative to Wyoming's legislators at an impromptu meeting a couple weeks ago. At the meeting, Donovan explained why their bill helped soften the anger of many Coloradoans towards the feds. I think this bill went a long ways to alleviate that local frustration that we're hearing because now we have a very uh, proactive approach instead of feeling like we're reactionary or having things done to us. Proactive because her state gave locals more power to negotiate with the government. In order to have a seat at the table in these complicated federal land use discussions, you have to have technical knowledge and technical expertise. Now, very often, small local communities and rural communities don't have the staffing capability to wade in to these technical land use discussions, but the state does. Colorado's law pays for that skilled staff to help counties get the training, equipment, and data that they need to work with National Forests, BLM, and other agencies. Donovan says it gave them a knowledgeable voice on decisions that affected them, like grazing restrictions or energy development in their backyard. But here's the funny thing. Wyoming adopted an almost identical program years ago, back in the early 2000s. It's called the Federal Natural Resources Policy Account, or FNERPA. Wyoming County Commissioners Association Director Peter Obermuller. It has been a model in the West. Lots of other states have looked at this model. At the meeting, the Wildlife Federation argued that the best thing to do is expand FNERPA. Obermuller says the way both Colorado and Wyoming's programs work is to take advantage of the fact that by law, the feds must include county governments in land decision making. That doesn't give counties the trump card if, if, they, if they end up not being able to coordinate as much as, as perhaps we would like. But the requirement is on the federal government to make that attempt. Obermuller says right now FNERPA is underfunded with only about a million dollars in the budget for it. But he says even so, there are success stories. Like a project to help county commissioners compile data about how the ups and downs of Wyoming's economy affects their communities. Data they otherwise would have to provide anecdotally. And so we partnered using some FNERPA uh, resources with the University of Wyoming to provide a template that all counties can use to develop uh, a sound, defensible socioeconomic uh, data source that can input to the federal land use planning process whenever necessary. But some legislators are still resistant to the idea of expanding FNERPA instead of passing a full-blown public land transfer bill. Here's Speaker of the House Steve Harshman at a recent press conference. You know, 67 percent of our minerals are federally owned. And that's the real issue for us in Wyoming. And somehow it's gotten convoluted into an issue that we want to take people's favorite hunting and fishing spot away. House Majority Floor Leader David Miller adds, the goal is not to take over national parks or wilderness areas, just mineral-rich areas like BLM lands. This isn't about 
taking away lands from recreation. In fact, there's a huge misconception. But ultimately, there just weren't enough legislators who agreed with Miller and Harshman to vote through such a controversial bill, since it required two-thirds support in the Senate and House. Senate President Eli Bebout apparently realized he didn't have those votes. Late in the day Friday, he killed the land transfer amendment. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. When we come back, we'll hear about Liz Cheney's first weeks as a U.S. representative. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. It's been nearly three decades since a Cheney has represented Wyoming in Congress, but voters sent Liz Cheney to the nation's capital to follow in her dad's footsteps in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressional correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington. Former Vice President Dick Cheney is a known entity here at the Capitol. There's even a bust of him on the second floor. But what do members of Congress know of his daughter, the former cable news talking head and short-lived U.S. Senate candidate. I don't watch Fox much. I remember when she was running for office uh, at her daddy's behest. Nothing. I have no impression of her. None? None. I mean, I've, like, I know, know only of her from, you know, what uh, I've seen in the press last couple of years, but that's about it. Uh, nice, confident. She'll be, she'll be an, an effective congresswoman. Those were Utah Republican Rob Bishop and Arizona Democrats Ruben Gallego and Raul Grijalva. Cheney will serve with all of them on the House Natural Resources Committee. Committee Chairman Rob Bishop says while some Democrats may be put off by her name, it's a positive among Republicans. I mean, I mean, let's face it, on our side, we liked Cheney as Vice, Vice President Cheney, so that's a plus, especially in our committee. Um, and, and the issues that she has to represent in Wyoming are uh, sympathetic with everything we have to do on our committees. The top Democrat on the Natural Resources Committee, Congressman Raul Grijalva, says the committee has been hyperpartisan of late, and he expects Cheney to fit right into the Republican mantra. Oh, that all your early, early bad fights from anything from climate change to turning land over to the states, da 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 da, da more extraction, deregulation, are all going to be in that committee early. A lot of fights. A lot of fights. And I anticipate that she'll be on the other side. Cheney turned some heads at the Capitol when she was tapped to serve on the 13-member Rules Committee, which largely controls the House floor. With nine Republicans and only four Democrats on the committee, it's largely viewed as an extension of the Speaker himself, packed with his allies who do his bidding by keeping as much drama and surprises out of the House floor debates as possible. Cheney says she's excited to have her fingerprints on most every bill before it hits the House floor. You know, it's actually a great place to be as a freshman because it it really gives you a chance to have an impact and to see every major piece of legislation that goes to the floor before it goes to the floor. One of Cheney's four Democratic counterparts on the Rules Committee, Elsie Hastings of Florida, says he understands why she was tapped. I think she's extremely smart, very capable. And from the standpoint of the Republican ideology, I think she's a perfect fit. And Hastings says he looks forward to squaring off with Cheney, who he says gets an early boost from being placed on the Speaker-controlled committee. The Rules Committee attracts people that are vocal and aggressive uh, in their politics, and uh, Ms. Cheney certainly has demonstrated that over the course of time uh, in the public. And so, no, I'm not surprised. Every year um, uh, they have brought on one or two new 
um, uh, persons, uh, freshman persons. Uh, it being an exclusive committee, it's uh, a jewel for a freshman. Cheney is also serving on the Armed Services Committee. She says that's in part to focus on local issues and not just to raise her national stature. One of the areas that's particularly important for Wyoming, obviously, is F.E. Warren Air Force Base and the strategic forces there. And um, strategic forces and what's going on with our nuclear forces and our ability to make sure we're modernizing and maintaining those forces, it's, it's a perfect example of an issue that really matters to us at home, but matters to the entire country, matters to our ability to defend ourselves. With three committee assignments that cover a broad array of issues, Cheney is set for a big first year. But she says there's a lot to do. Right now I'm just focused on what, what is it going to take to make sure that we begin to reduce this massive burden that the, the federal government has put on Wyoming, especially in the last eight years. And that's a big task. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. For the past few years, the Wyoming Humanities Council has put on a series of events called Ignite, where locals gave short multimedia presentations, like TED Talks. This year, the council is kicking off another series of presentations in Cheyenne, Casper, and Laramie, with a name change and a shift in focus to storytelling. Jason Burge joined me to talk about some of these changes. Ignites were actually created for... Um Art, uh, engineering, design, uh, a lot like TED. They were they were more tech savvy. And what we found was we wanted people to tell a little bit more uh, in-depth stories. So we've added a whole two minutes. <laughs> uh, so instead of being five minutes, they're now um, seven-minute presentations, the same amount of uh, uh, multimedia and whatnot at 20 slides. But, yeah, we just uh, lengthen them. As for the content of this first one, Insight Legends, we're going to have jackalopes, ghost towns, Catholic saints. Tell me a little bit about the theme that ties these all together, legends. It just comes from Cheyenne's uh, motto, the live the legend thing. We wanted to just see what the thinkers in the state would actually take with that theme of legends and interpret it as. And yeah, we've gotten some strange ones. A wrestling coach named Charles Fournier over in Cheyenne is doing one about burying Catholic saints and what that actually means to, uh, when it comes to spirituality. So the interpretations have uh, been very broad in theme. Like Very few people are being like, this is a legendary figure, or this is a legendary uh, story. Um, we've got a couple of those, but it's a nice mix. You do have quite a lineup. You have authors Samuel Western and Nina McConaughey, Bob Budd, who's the chairman of Frontier Days and executive director of the Wyoming Wildlife and Natural Resources Trust. You have Wyoming's first Native American legislator, Athie Ellis. You have teachers, photographers, motivational speakers. How did you think to bring all these different people together? It's always interesting. Like in, in Laramie, we put out a call for these because it's built it's built up enough now. People know what it, the event is. In Cheyenne, we use our networks, and the only question I really asked anybody, because I've, I've put up a bunch of feelers, and I was like, who are your best storytellers? Who are people who have something to say? And uh, a lot of these people were uh, who were brought to us. We really wanted to be on them. How do you interpret the idea of legend in Wyoming? Um, and they did a pretty knockout job. And can you talk a little bit about the format? You said these are seven-minute stories? Our little catchphrase for them is just, you have seven minutes, what's your story? The presenters write basically in kind of like 45-word blocks, and each block goes along with an image that just is supposed to be an echo or a way to help tell the narrative. 
But they're fun. It's it's amazing to watch people like working on them until the last minute because it's a hard format, and that's a lot of the fun of it. Watching people um, stay on task, watching them hopefully get through unscathed, but more than anything, share something that they feel is an important idea in a very short amount of time. They've got seven minutes. Uh, I hope a lot of people out there have seven minutes to come listen to a few of them. The Wyoming Humanities Council seems to be trying to spark discussion in a lot of its events or, or following them. So what kind of a discussion do you hope these stories and presentations lead to? Hopefully civil discussion, first of all. Uh, not too many of the topics are something that people could have a knockdown drag out over. But when it comes down to it, uh, we'll be talking about spiritualism. We'll be talking about um, religious beliefs. We'll be talking about the history of coal in the state. We'll be talking about the restrictions put on uh, Native American education whenever we were trying to do erasure. So, yeah, with eight speakers, hopefully there are a lot of questions that people take with them and keep thinking about. Um, my favorite thing is when people keep researching something uh, with the program that we put on. If we can put one seed in there that they can grow a thought from and start conversations in their daily lives, that's what we're all about, and that's what we hope to do with this program as well. And... Uh, with an added bonus, Jalon Crossland's going to be playing music at it. And uh, if you haven't ever heard him, he's just straight up legendary when it comes to, to playing. Appropriate for the theme, Insight Legends. <laughs> Absolutely. There will be more Insight events around the state. Insight Legends in Cheyenne is just the first of them. What is going to be happening there? Well, basically, this is uh, for this new programmatic line, uh, this is a partnership between uh, Wyoming Humanities and the University of Wyoming Creative Writing Program. And basically, um, it's a story. It, we're sharing storytelling throughout the state. Um, we've got two other events so far lined up for this year. The first is at the Casper College Humanities Festival on February 25th, and then one on uh, April 12th here in Laramie. But mainly, we just want people to tell stories, come together as a community. Um, have a few laughs, and leave with something a little bit deeper on their minds. Will those other events have different themes? Yes. The the February one is going to be on identity, um, to be in conjunction with the theme of the, the Humanities Festival up in Casper. And then uh, Laramie's is going to be on the theme of abominable slash indomitable snow persons. So <laughs> however people can interpret that, whether it's stories about mountain men or famous climbers or explorers or just people in their lives who do not give up or people in their lives who we really wish would give up. <laughs> um, either way, we hope that it's a really fun evening. Jason Burge talking about the Insight Legends event. He is the Eastern Wyoming Regional Director for the Wyoming Humanities Council. Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you for having us. You can find out more about locations and dates at the Wyoming Humanities Council Facebook page. Coming up, we'll hear about the state's revenue shortfall and how it's impacting education. This is Open Spaces.
This is Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. After a historic downturn in revenue, the Wyoming legislature has started this year's session with a number of concerns. They still have a $150 million shortfall in revenue to fund their current budget, and K-12 education funding has a $400 million deficit, and they have no money for school construction. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that while legislative committees have been focused on other issues, there will soon come a point where lawmakers need to figure out how to move forward. Almost 20 years ago, a group of legislators and revenue experts decided that the state needed to determine what services it wants and what it would cost to provide those services. Buffalo Representative Mike Madden remembers those discussions well, and he says the problem is simple. We have built a a paternalistic dependence on the mineral industry, and when they have a hiccup, uh, we have trouble learning how to act which leads to extensive budget cuts and panicking. The state legislature is probably better prepared for this downturn due to the fact that it saved some of its surplus over the last 15 years. Currently, the main legislative savings account is over a billion dollars. But Madden is among those who would like a more stable source of revenue. But getting taxes passed is a tough gig. His committee will be looking at some moderate measures in coming weeks. There's a couple of uh, cigarette tax bills that uh, we're looking at, uh, even a liquor tax of all things that we're looking at, and, and there's some other taxes. So I think there's a lot of opportunities that we can do the right thing, I think. But the only way to make up for the loss of energy revenue is to pass a major tax. Those tax hikes are typically dead on arrival. Senator Leland Christensen smiles when he thinks about the conversations with constituents who want service after service. We don't have enough money for all of that, and the people of the state are going to be involved in that decision, whether it is a tax increase, a sales tax, a property tax, or an income tax. People need to think hard when they say, we want more or we want to maintain, because we've got to balance our budget by Constitution. In other words, Wyoming is not the federal government. That's why so many state agencies saw budget cuts this year and why lawmakers are looking to cut funding from K-12 education. The governor has proposed a long-term plan to once and for all diversify the economy. House floor leader David Miller was not keen on that when the legislature kicked off two weeks ago. Diversifying the economy will not diversify the tax base. In fact, every non-mineral job is a further drain on our limited revenues. That's because many think Wyoming's tax structure is screwed up. The minerals industry pays a lot in taxes. The rest of us don't. So when prices drop, so does Wyoming's revenue. Laramie Senator Chris Rothfuss says that needs to change. Imagining a future where we have a diverse economy, what would we want that tax structure to actually look like if the economy were diversified so we had an information technology sector, a biotechnology sector, robust manufacturing, and the minerals industry? As the state looks to diversify the economy, Rothfuss wants lawmakers to take time to change the tax structure. Look at what other states are doing states that have diversified economies, what does their tax structure look like relative to ours? How do they implement that? Are there ways that we can phase it in or provide that you don't have redundant taxation so that we're not penalizing people anew? A number of legislators are slowly coming around to that idea. 
Cheyenne Representative Dan Swanitzer says they need a long-term view. I think the last two years we've been doing short-term fixes, um, and we probably could do another short-term fix, but the longer you kick the can down, the greater the overall magnitude of a complete fix is going to have to be. And so there's no reason to delay it really another year um, if we can try to figure out how to solve it now and start making strides to that end. And Zwanitzer says there's a lot of discussion about doing things differently. I think now with a new crop of legislators, we're younger than ever and median age. The conversation really is back to the future. I know Speaker Harshman keeps emphasizing as a, a t- teacher and a coach, you know, we've got to look to the next generation. We've got to keep our kids here and maybe that's where it starts. Lawmakers are hoping to develop some solutions this summer with a number of public hearings. Senator Leland Christensen says that's great, but some spending and revenue discussions need to begin now. He says the education funding crisis is real and they need to work quickly to solve it, but it needs to be done wisely too. I think we need to be aggressive and we need to take some action this year and we're going to have to define some steps. Are we going to solve the whole thing in one year? I kind of like that approach that we we take some significant steps and then we let it settle and see how it fits before we try to uh, just roll the dice and hopefully get it right in one big decision. Legislators will tell you that it's difficult for elected officials to think beyond the next two years. But if they don't, the boom-bust cycle will continue. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. There's a bill before the legislature that would help improve virtual learning in Wyoming schools, especially in rural areas, where hiring teachers in specialized fields can be hard. Districts across the state are already experimenting with online courses, but the Department of Education wants to bring this opportunity to all students. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson went to Rock Springs to visit a school that's blazing ahead. Sharon Seaton teaches up to 10 different classes simultaneously. That means from advanced math to mixing paint for a diorama to troubleshooting computer problems, she's constantly fielding questions. Okay, I got confused again. Okay, so based on the kaleidogram organization by genetic information, how does the human monkey relationship compare to the duck chicken? So, what's the duck chicken? <laughs> well, on your paper when you did the, the analysis, how many, how many sequences were the same between the duck and the chicken, and how many were the same between I the follow Renee the back to her desk to understand what this duck-chicken business is all about. I think it's the chicken and the duck that have more differences. The lesson is asking her to use genetic data to challenge surface assumptions. They might have more, like, similarities, physical appearances, but... Renee failed the traditional biology class at Rock Springs High School, but here at Black Butte, an alternative high school, she is thriving in Miss Seaton's online science classes. It's more of an independent thing. We just go on to our class, sign in, and then these are all the stuff we have to fill out and make sure we have done. We have specific uh, due dates. Yeah, It's not bad. And it seems to be having a positive impact. 
Principal Mike Maloney gathers his teachers for some cookies in the break room to celebrate the announcement from the state that the school's graduation rates went up 20 percent. It's a change he attributes in part to the increase in online learning opportunities because you get kids that can suddenly start to, to study things that they're more interested in. So kids have voice and choice. And then I just think it's that self-paced aspect and really an individualized approach to learning. Each student borrows a laptop from Ms. Seaton at the start of the class. They log in to Moodle. That's an online learning platform, one of many used by teachers across the state. The virtual education bill provides financial support to create a unified system. That would make it possible for teachers across the state to share the online courses they create. Okay, so see when I click on solid, see how the molecules are? Mm-hmm. Ms. Seaton's showing a student what happens to molecules when matter okay. goes from it's solid to liquid to gas. Like. Instead of traditional like lectures, spacing. students this follow links to videos and online so simulations. Here's the solid, and here's the liquid, and then here's the gas. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. As you can hear, the idea of students following their passions at their own pace is not as simple as just getting kids on computers. Effective virtual learning requires support and well-trained teachers, like Ms. Seaton. How do you keep up with all of this? <laughs> well, um, I'm a 20, I'm, I will tell you, I'm a 22-year veteran, okay? So um, I have, since 2001, had some type of online presence. But it still took her six or seven months to prepare the first 10 classes. Her plan is to have 15 available next year and then 20 by 2018. She surveys kids to know what new courses to design. Botany will come online next year. I had a kid who was interested in bugs, so we built an entomology class for him. We had a kid. We have kids who were interested in and genetics, the list goes geology. on. Um, she caters the courses to the interests of her students, but that doesn't mean they all love online learning. I head downstairs to Ms. Colson's classroom, where six students are sitting at laptops. No hands-on activities are happening today. The lessons and assessments are all right there on the screen. And ninth grader Bree is not a fan. <laughs> I don't really understand how to do anything with a computer because I don't have one. And I am the normal paper pencil type of person. <laughs> don't like new stuff. And Ms. Colson agrees. The transition to online learning can be hard. I saw last semester I had more F's than I've had in my 15 years of teaching. Now that she knows the programs, she says things are going a lot smoother. And that's another goal of the virtual education bill that Ms. Seaton says is critical. We need the professional development to teach teachers how to leverage the technology. Um, the second thing is, is you have to have a real big understanding of the standards. That's to make sure individualized learning plans still meet content and performance requirements. One kid told me it's important to maintain a balance between computer time and face-to-face teaching. For Ms. Seaton, technology allows her to use that precious face-to-face time to do something more transformative than just deliver content. The kids don't need me. I actually am obsolete because they can Google everything they need to know. But to be able to take that information and apply it, work collaboratively, problem solve, that to me now is my job. Ms. Seaton's classroom represents what's possible. She'd like to see districts have the support they need to make virtual education an option for every kid in Wyoming. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Wyoming's revenue downturn has forced lawmakers to take a look at cutting a lot of money from education. K-12 education has a $400 million shortfall. 
Speaker of the House Steve Harshman joins me to discuss the problem and how they plan to fix it. Not going to cut your way out of it, but you're not going to probably tax your way out of it either. I, I think, you know, even a two cent sales tax wouldn't even quite get you there. And so it's too big to cut and too big to tax. And so I think our, you know, education committee and others have been working. I think the white paper is out there on our website, really kind of breaking up this big problem, this 400 million per year problem into pieces. And the white paper talks about five pieces. One of those pieces is reductions. And, um, and then we have some other ways we can, you know, with revenue, wealth reductions, spend our savings. You know, and we've spent a billion dollars in savings now in the last three years. We will have at the end of next fiscal year, we've got a billion and a half left. So we're, we are spending our savings. Changing of fund flows, you know, I think we'll try. There's a group that wants to... Uh, get the 1% severance tax, at least for a time period, to ease some of this. And then, too, in the common school permanent fund, these permanent land funds that have been with us since we became a state generate income. And there's a thing called a spending policy, and it's what percentage uh, that you make, really, on the, on the corpus, the money you have in the bank. And we generally guarantee about 2.5% of that that we budget on, and we're talking about raising that up to 5%, and that gets a little dicier because you don't always make 5%. You know, and I don't think anybody's talking about new taxes, but maybe closing some of the exemptions. You know, I think there's 50-some exemptions sales tax alone. There's a lot of exemptions out there. I hear this all the time. The last thing we want to do here is raise taxes, but at the same time, you might not see some of these revenues come back from energy. Do you need to at least have this conversation that we're talking about a revenue stream so you can maintain government? Because you, you're probably going to hit a point where you can't cut a lot more. And, and you might be there. I think, you know, it's a fair question, and I think everything has to be on the table. And I think everybody in Wyoming is saying everything has to be on the table. And I think, you know, we're going to spend down our savings, I think, before any taxes. I think that's what people would ask us to do. But this historic drop in revenue in the shortest amount of time has never happened in our state's history but i would say we're probably the most prepared that we've ever been so we've got a couple years of cushion to kind of look for a rebound to work on solutions those kind of things so um, we're the most prepared generation certainly in our state's history and that's thanks to the folks before us that had start saved money frankly we're talking with Speaker of the House Steve Harshman, and you just got the Consensus Revenue Estimating Group. And for those of us, uh, for those of us listening that don't come here every day and don't talk about Craig reports all the time, this is how you. This is the revenue forecast that you have that you use to help budget. What did you see in there that was maybe scared the heck out of you, or at least maybe made you optimistic? So the change from October to January, I would say, is mainly good news the precipitous drop that we've had has stopped. And really, if you look at all the areas, there's really two that are down and two that are up. And coal and natural gas prices are up. The weather is very important to us. You know, a year ago, it was a warm Chicago. This year, it's been a cold Chicago and a cold Midwest. And that really has a dramatic effect on our natural gas prices and also our coal prices. And so those two are up. The two that are down are really our sales tax. 
you know, we have 10,000 less people in the state. So that personal income has also dropped. Some of our jobs have changed in this time, I think, and incomes are down a little bit. Uh, the other piece out there is really the income on our pooled investments is down. And pooled investments are really the cash that the state has. So it's really twofold. Part of it is we have less cash because all of our capital construction projects are held in cash. And so as we build buildings and we don't add new construction to the list, that, that corpus or that uh, money in the bank gets smaller. Secondly, you know, our, the bond market and the fixed income market with low interest rates, it's poor right now. It's as poor as it's been ever, maybe. And so the cautionary part, the part that frankly scares me is a part that uh, I was uh, really adamant that this main, I was glad to see Craig kept it in here and uh, was really this warning about uh, bonds and interest rates because we have a tremendous amount of money of our state portfolio in what were once considered safe investments are bonds. Uh, and we think we're going to be going into a rising interest rate environment. And, and of course, um, bonds are going to lose value. And so we're concerned about that. On the, the good news, though, the equity side is doing very well. Let me just ask you this. There's a lot of people that seem optimistic that is, is that sort of the thought process right now with a lot of folks that maybe let's get through this tough three or four years and then we might be okay and we might have some stable revenue? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to predict. I'm an optimist. I mean, I'm, I'm spending my time really talking about our young people, uh, how we're going to kind of grow our state, how we keep young people in our state, how we get good jobs, how we diversify the economy, we'll continue to talk about it, talk, talk, talk. Frankly, we're going to take the Governor's Endow program and take it to the next level, I think. And, and uh, there's a lot of things that have been set up, even go back into the 70s in our Constitution with economic development funds and those kind of things that we need to get more creative about using, that our cash is a little less right now. And so I think you're going to see all those things come forward in this session. Speaker of the House, Steve Harshman, always a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Appreciate it. Ahead, we'll wrap up the show with a preview of the spring 2017 cultural programs at the University of Wyoming, and we'll hear from Jackson residents what they're hoping to see from the new Trump administration. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. As the University of Wyoming begins another semester, a new lineup of cultural programming at the school is on the horizon. Janelle Fletcher is the Director of Fine Arts Outreach and Cultural Programs at the University of Wyoming. She sat down with me to talk about what spring 2017 has in store for students and the public. First up, uh, Friday the 3rd of February, we've got the Escher String Quartet coming in. They're a young quartet who are now in residence uh, with Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. Then we uh, will move to, on Valentine's Day, Savion Glover. As many know, he's a 
world-famous tap dancer who studied with Gregory Hines. A lot of people will know him from his work on Sesame Street. He also was the choreographer for the Tony Award-winning Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, um, and has been on national TV a number of times in the past few years. So he will be of great interest to people. Following that, on March 3rd, we have a St. Patrick's Day program by the Irish Ensemble Danu, and they are one of Ireland's top touring and performing ensembles, so that should be a very exciting and fun um, event. And then on the 23rd of March and then the 24th of March, we will uh, have a couple of concerts that coincide with the Music Department's Jazz Fest program. First up is Alicia Olatuja. Uh, many might recognize her face, maybe not her name, but her face from uh, performing at President Obama's inauguration. And uh, second up on that bill on the 24th would be Joey DeFrancesco. He's a well-known Hammond organ player and jazz master all around. He's been around um, for many, many years and in, in the area in Denver a number of times. And we'll finish our season out on April 21st with Broadway's next hit musical, which is musical theater improv. It's comedy. I've seen it twice and it is, um, it'll leave you with side stitches every time. As you mentioned, we'll have the jazz festival and some events that coincide mm -hmm. with that. Lots of jazz this time around. What differentiates those acts? Well, Alicia is actually a vocalist, so she will come in with her combo, and she'll do um, probably mostly jazz standards. It's it's what we previewed her and um, doing and hoping that she will do here on a program here. Joey will actually perform with some musicians out of Denver, so local musicians when he comes in, and he will perform um, ahead of the UW Jazz Ensemble that will be the second part of the bill of that night's program. And uh, that'll be really exciting to be able to showcase stu our student ensembles for the music department that are so, so great, as well as um, professional musicians out of New York. And of course, we have Garrison Keeler coming to the A&S Auditorium in April as part of WPR's 50th anniversary events. Is that part of cultural programs as well? We are um, celebrating that event with WPR for the 50th anniversary. So we've made um, season ticket packages available that include these big celebration events within um, the anniversary celebration. And Garrison Danu is part of that as well, part of a sort of collaborative effort to really make a big splash of this big deal that is the 50th anniversary of Wyoming Public Radio. So we've got a pretty big range of events here. Is there a can't-miss event within the Springs lineup? I would say if there's a can't-miss event, it would be Savian Glover. One, uh, because lucky for everyone out there, it's a planned date night on Valentine's Day for you. So, so that's sort of a home run in terms of something really, really great to do. But having him here is a really unique opportunity. He had a one-day hole in his schedule as he was passing through, um, and it's so rare that he's on a cross-country tour and that we have the opportunity to see him. We've never presented tap before, and he is coming in with five other dancers, so it'll be a big light sound show production uh, that we highly recommend nobody miss. And looking at all of these different events, is there anything that people wanting to buy tickets should know, maybe an event that's going to be selling out pretty quickly? Sure. Um, I do have a, a sneaking suspicion based on previous history with Irish music ensembles and Gaelic ensembles that Danu will sell very quickly. People tend to get into a St. Patrick's Day spirit, and um, they also really like Irish music in general. So um, that one I would make sure to get your tickets early for. Savion, of course, tickets early because the good seats will go fast. And um, Broadway's next hit musical is selling like gangbusters. So we'd recommend people not wait to grab those seats as well. Janelle Fletcher is the Director of Fine Arts Outreach and Cultural Programs at the University of Wyoming. Janelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Caroline.
As part of NPR's A Nation Engaged series, we sent out to hear what Jackson residents are hoping to see from the new Trump administration. Rebecca Huntington brings us these voices. Larry Landers. Well, frankly, I'm just tired of the system. It works against the people and it's for the government. It's all about them. I want to see the new administration do something different. (laughs) Dave Simpson. I'm frightened for our country in a way that I've really never felt before. Donald Trump basically has a lack of respect for civil discourse, for other people's views, and for the value of operating in an open and transparent way. The people he's appointing to oversee federal agencies show that we're going to have a government of people run by people who fundamentally don't believe in the value of government, and that really scares me. Ellen Yateman. I really hope that he works with the affordable current Affordable Health Care Act and Um, keeps with it and makes the structure that we currently have work and do the best he can to make sure everyone stays covered. Randy Davis, let's have more money and less taxes. (laughs) I'm surprised I didn't get an invitation to go to the Trump Tower. Well, I'd be um, an advisor. And you would advise? On wildlife, both in the city and out of the city. I'm ready for a new era, you know. It's kind of like, I thought we were headed towards the European style of government, and I was there back in the 60s, and I wasn't crazy about it then, you know. My name is Hadley Lemke. Our community really cares deeply about the environment and about our public lands and about just thinking about climate change and human impacts on our climate. And I'm just hoping that our new president will be able to listen to, you know, the other side that really has a strong voice and wants to be heard. That piece came to us from Rebecca Huntington in Jackson. Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. If you get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. Anna Rader is our web editor. All of our reporters are on Twitter, and we'd love it if you liked our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page. As a reminder, we always like to hear about good story ideas. You can also submit those through our website or our Facebook page. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.